Hey there, all you serial killer fanatics. I'm Amanda. And I'm Corey. Welcome to Serial Killer Tuesday. Here at SKT, we talk about the nitty-gritty of all things serial killers. Want to know what makes some of the most prolific murderers tick? Yeah, so do we. We're just two best friends who love to talk about true crime and want to provide you, our new best friend, a place to talk about it too. New episodes air every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Each month, we will discuss the depravity of a new serial killer with weekly deep dives into their lives. Stop by for the stories. Stay for the fun. Today's fun fact is a serial killer will most likely murder within their area, and it is very rare for them to do it outside of their comfort zones. Please note, listener discretion advised, as we will be talking about sexual torture. Um, So, I just want to reiterate that we do ha- have another podcast on Friday, and we haven't got any of your questions. So, if you could get us your we want to know about questions, that would be fantastic. Because we would really like to answer them on air for you, our wonderful listeners. So, Send us all your we want to know questions. It would be amazing. We would love Please. it. We're open books. I mean, kind of. We do have some places. I mean, like my dad used to say, if you want to know, what are you doing writing a book? We'll leave this chapter out and we'll call it a mystery. Oh. <laughs> 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 uh. I am an open book. You can ask me anything and I'll tell you. I am easy peasy lemon squeezy when it comes to questions. I mean, if we don't want to answer it, we won't answer it. But I mean, unless you're asking about some weird bedroom activity, we'll pretty much answer whatever. So um, you have until Thursday to get your questions in. So get your questions in. Yeah. woohoo! That's an order. Damn. I mean, that sounded a little bossy, but if anyone knows me in person, I mean, that's regular. <laughs> I was just going to say, well, you know, in real life, we're actually pretty bossy. <laughs> it's just who I am. <laughs> it's who I am as a person. Gosh, it's like you live in Illinois or something. Oh, that's right. I did move. <laughs> I forgot. Wow. <laughs> Been living out here for a hot second. I almost forgot I moved. <laughs> I know. See? Good thing I'm here to remind you. <laughs> All right. So let's jump into this this final episode of Dean Coral, aka the Candy Man. So if you recall from the previous three episodes, uh Dean and his two accomplices accomplices have been murdering boys and young men for the last almost three years. Uh, He had a creepy white van that did not have free candy painted on the side, but close that he was using to lure them in with. He used promises of candy, marijuana, alcohol, and cool parties. Today we will be talking about what happened to Dean and the accomplices getting caught and what ended up happening with all of that. So, let's just dive right in, okay? Sounds good to me. At this time, Dean was feeling pretty good about himself. He had had little interaction with the police and hadn't even been on the radar 
of any of these missing boys cases. So he was pretty confident. On August 8th, 1973, Elmer Henley went and messed their whole game up. He brought Rhonda Williams, who was only 15, to Dean's house. She had run away from home and was needing a place to stay. So Henley, being a 16-year-old kid, thought it would be okay to bring her there. It was not. They decided to sniff a lot of varnish, do some drugs, and drink some alcohol. And at this point, it was Rhonda, Elmer Henley, and one of Henley's other friends, a boy by the name of Timothy Curley. After they did all the drugs and the varnish and the alcohol, they passed out. And Dean decided to teach Henley a lesson because he's not supposed to bring girls over. So while they were all passed out, he tied them all up. When Henley came to, he found that Dean was snapping a pair of handcuffs on him. He had been bound at the ankles as well. He noticed that Rhonda and Timothy were lying beside him face down on the floor, bound with rope and gagged with tape. Timothy was also stripped naked. Dean told Henley that he was angry with him for bringing a girl into the house and that he was going to kill all three of the teenagers after he assaulted and tortured Timothy. He then proceeded to kick Rhonda numerous times in the chest, dragged Henley to the kitchen, and placed a gun against his stomach and threatened to kill him. Henley ended up calming him down and promised to participate in the torture and murder of both of the other teens if Dean would release him. Dean agreed and untied Hindley. Then he carried both Timothy and Rhonda to the bedroom and tied them on opposite sides of the torture board, Rhonda on her back and Timothy on his stomach. Dean then handed Elmer a hunting knife and told him to cut off Rhonda's clothes, insisting that while Dean would rape, torture, and kill Timothy, Elmer would have to do the same to Rhonda. Elmer began cutting away Rhonda's clothes as Dean undressed and began to assault and torture Timothy. Both of the teens had woken up at this point. Timothy began struggling and shouting as Rhonda, whose gag Elmer had removed, asked him, is this for real? And Elmer answered her, yes. She then asked him, are you going to do anything about it? Elmer asked Dean if he could take Rhonda into the other room. Dean ignored him. Then, Elmer grabbed Dean's pistol and told him that he had gone far enough. Coral approached him saying, quote, kill me, Wayne, you won't do it, end quote, and kept advancing on Elmer. Elmer had finally had enough and shot Dean, hitting him in the forehead. Dean continued to advance on Elmer, so he fired two more rounds into his shoulder. He spun around and headed out of the room. As he staggered down the hallway, Elmer fired three more rounds, hitting him in the lower back and the shoulder. He slid down the wall and died outside the room where the two teenagers were bound. And he was also naked. After the shooting, Elmer released the two teens and they got dressed and discussed what they should do. Elmer said that they should just leave and Timothy said no, they needed to call the police. Elmer agreed and looked up the number to the Pasadena Police Department in Dean's directory. Because 911 is so difficult? <laughs> Maybe they had a different number. They were like, this isn't really an emergency. He's he's already tits up. I mean, he's already dead, so. <laughs> Whatever, you get a chance. Maybe they just called the non-emergency line. They're like, hey, uh, yeah, so <laughs> we killed this guy. <laughs> Guy's here. Know. So weird. <laughs> died. 
Yeah, it just did. Just did. So it was 8.24 a.m. on August 8th, 1973, when Elmer placed his call to the Pasadena Police Department. His call was answered by Velma Lines, which is funny that her last name is Lines and she answered the phone. I love Velma. I know. He blurted out to her, y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man. He gave the address to Dean's house, 2020 Lamar Drive. Then the three of them went out to wait on Dean's porch for the police to come. As they were waiting, Elmer mentioned to Timothy that he has killed by shooting people four or five other times. A few minutes later, the police arrived at the house. The three teenagers were still sitting outside on the porch, and officers noticed that there was a 22 caliber pistol just sitting on the driveway. Elmer told them that he made the call and that Dean was lying dead in the hallway of the house. After taking the pistol into evidence and putting all three kids in the back of the patrol car, the officer entered the house and found Dean's dead body. The officer then returned to the car and read Elmer his Miranda rights. Elmer responded, I don't care who knows about it. I have to get this off my chest. Timothy, later on, informed the police that before they arrived, Elmer told him, I could have gotten $200 for you. Which is creepy. Why would you tell somebody that? They keep that so to yourself. Awful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so rude. Well, it is rude. <laughs> Get it together, Elmer. It's 200 bucks. You're fine. Murder on your conscience. But right? while in custody, Elmer explained to the police that for almost three years, he and David Brooks had helped to get Dean teenage boys, some of which were their own friends, for him to rape and murder. Henley told the police that Dean had paid them each $200 for every boy that they brought to him. He admitted that he assisted Dean in several abductions and murders of teenage boys and that most of the victims were buried in a boat shed in southwest Houston, Lake Sam Rayburn, and High Island Beach. At first, the police didn't really believe Elmer. Instead, assuming that the sole homicide was just Dean's, and they just chalked that up to a drug-fueled fight that had turned deadly. Elmer was insistent and told them the names of three missing boys, Cobble, Hillgeist, and Jones, who he and David had gotten for Dean. They finally accepted that there might be something to his story, since all three of those names were listed as missing at the Houston police headquarters. When they searched Dean's house, Elmer's information made more sense. In the house, where the three teenagers were tied up, there was heavy plastic sheeting covering the floor. They also found a plywood torture board that measured seven feet by three feet with handcuffs in each corner. They found a large hunting knife, more rolls of plastic sheeting, a portable radio rigged to a pair of dry cells to increase the volume, a number of dildos, thin glass tubes, and lengths of rope. They also searched the white van in Dean's driveway, which conveyed a similar impression. The windows were sealed with blue curtains. In the back of the van, they found more rope, a beige rug covered in stains, and a wooden crate that had air holes drilled into the sides of it. There were pegboard walls in the van that were rigged with several rings and hooks. They also found another wooden crate with air holes in the yard 
that had some human hair inside of it. Disturbing. So, at this point, Henley agreed to show the police Dean's boat shed, where he claimed the bodies of most of the victims could be found. Inside the boat shed, they found a half-stripped car, which turned out to be a stolen car from a used car lot back in March, a child's bike, empty bags of lime, and a box of teenage boys' clothing. Police started to dig through the soft dirt of the boat shed and soon uncovered the body of a young, blonde teenage boy lying face-up in plastic sheeting buried beneath a layer of lime. The police kept digging, unearthing the remains of more victims in various stages of decomposition. Most of the victims were found wrapped in clear plastic sheeting. Some of them had been shot, others strangled, with the ligature still wrapped around their necks. All of the victims had been sodomized, and most of them showed some kind of sexual torture. Pubic hairs had been plucked out, genitals had been chewed on by humans, objects had been inserted into their rectums, and glass rods had been shoved into their urethra and smashed. Cloth rags had been shoved into their mouths, and adhesive tapes had been wound around their heads to muffle their screams. Dean had castrated some of his victims while they were still alive, and their genitals were found in sealed plastic bags. On August 8, 1973, a total of eight victims were found in the boat shed. That evening, David Brooks turned himself into the Houston police with his father. He gave a statement denying participation in any of the murders, but admitted knowing that Dean had raped and killed two youths in 1970. On August 9, 1973, Henley went with the police to Lake Sam Rayborn, where they found two additional bodies. Then they went back to the boat shed later on that same night and found the bodies of nine more boys. David Brooks finally gave a full confession later on, in the evening of the night. He admitted to being present at several killings and assisting in several of the burials. He did, however, continue to deny any direct participation in the actual murders. He agreed to then accompany the police to High Island to assist in the search for more bodies buried there. What bad kids. Right? And the other problem is, is that they knew exactly who was buried where and why. Right. They're like, hey, this we buried them over here. Yeah. So on August 10th, 1973, the next day, Henley, with the police, went back to Lake Sam Rayburn, where they found the remaining two victims. As with the previous two victims that were found on the beach, these boys had been beaten and tortured, especially around the head. Later on in the afternoon of the 10th, Elmer and David went with police back to High Island, where they led police to the shallow graves of two more victims. On August 13th, Elmer and David took police back to High Island where they discovered the graves of four more victims, making the total number of bodies found 27. At the time, this was the worst killing spree in American history. Henley initially insisted that there were two more bodies to be found inside the boat shed, and also that the bodies of two more boys had been buried at High Island Beach in 72. At the time, the killing spree was the worst case of serial murder in terms of number of victims in the United States 
exceeding the 25 murders attributed to Juan Corona from California, who was arrested in 1971 for killing 25 men. The Houston mass murders, as they became known, hit the headlines all over the world. Even Pope Paul VI commented on the, atro on the atrocious nature of the crimes and offered sympathy to relatives of those who had died. Police were inundated with inquiries regarding missing boys from parents all across the United States. The family of Coral's victims were highly critical of the Houston Police Department, which they had every right to be. I agree. They had been quick to list the missing boys as runaways who had not been considered worthy. The families of the murdered youths asserted that the police should have noticed a trend in the pattern of disappearances of the teenage boys from the Heights neighborhood. Uh, yeah, 27 of them, them went missing and probably half of those were from the Heights neighborhood. And, and two of them, of them were from the same history. family. Oh, yeah. That poor family. I know. Other family members complained that the police had been dismissive to their adamant insistence that their sons had no reasons to run away from home. Yeah, most of them didn't. The father of the Waldrop boys complained that the Houston police chief had simply told him, you know your boys are runaways. The mother of Mally Winkle stated, you don't run away with nothing but a bathing suit and 80 cents. By April of 1974, 21 of Coral's victims had been identified, with all but four of the youths having either lived in or had close connections to Houston Heights. Two more teenagers were identified in 1983 and 1985, one of whom, Richard Kempner, also lived in Houston Heights. The other youth, Willard Branch, lived in the Oak Forest District of Houston. Elmer Wayne Henley and David Owen Brooks were tried separately for their roles in the murders. Henley was brought to trial on July 1st, 1974, and charged with six of the murders committed between March 1972 and July of 1973. The prosecution called dozens of witnesses, including Tim Curley, who you remember was there when, at the final time, and Billy Ridinger, who was the one that they convinced to get released, which was weird. Henley was convicted on July 16, 1974. He was sentenced to six consecutive 99-year terms. He appealed and was awarded a retrial on December of 1978. His new trial began in June of 1979, where he was again convicted, and on June 27, 1979, was again sentenced to six consecutive 99-year terms. He probably should have just, you know, stuck it out. Right? Can you imagine I mean, you get sentenced and you're like, oh, man, that's a lot of time. I'm going to appeal and get a retrial. And he's like, I'm going to be found not guilty. And he gets the same thing. And he's like, damn it. Right. <laughs> Fine. That's got to be embarrassing. <laughs> he's lucky he didn't get more time. He really is. He's lucky he didn't get convicted or tried on more of the murders and that he mm -hmm. was only tried for six of them. Um, yeah. I mean, as far as accomplices go, he was more involved in it than I think than David Brooks was. Mm -hmm. So I think that, I mean, six consecutive 99 year terms is a really long time. He's never getting out of jail. Like that's never going to happen. However, he, 27 people were murdered. Like, right. And you only six of them. I don't know. That's weird. I agree. And I feel like at that point, you're no longer an accomplice. Now you are. Like a co-conspirator. A serial killer. 
Yeah. yeah. Like, like I mean, you honestly, did they're serial killers too. Oh, absolutely. Well, David Brooks was brought to trial on February 27th, 1975. He had been indicted for four murders committed from December of 1970 through June of 1973. But he was only brought to trial on the murder of Billy Ray Lawrence. His trial lasted one week and the jury was out for 90 minutes before they returned with a guilty verdict. He was sentenced on March 4th. 1975 to life imprisonment. David showed no emotion as the verdict and the sentence were being read. His wife, however, burst into tears. Brooks also tried to appeal and his appeal was dismissed in May of 1979. Brooks died of COVID complications in May, 2020. Henley is still alive and serving out his sentence at the Styles Unit in Jefferson County, Texas. I don't know how I feel about this case. I don't feel like, I'm not sure that those 27 victims got the justice that they deserve because Dean was murdered. Uh-huh. I mean, let's just call it like it was. He was murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other two boys got convictions for only seven people. Right. When, honestly, David Brooks started helping in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he was only found guilty on the four murders from the beginning to he, the very end. He wasn't even found guilty on four of them. He was only found... Right. He was only brought to trial on one murder. Right. Which is just so crazy. It really is. I, you know, the 70s were a different time in terms of... Like how policing worked, how the justice system worked. Not that the justice system has changed entirely that much. No, it hasn't. But there was, I think there was so much more victim blaming back Mm -hmm. then than there is now. I mean, there's still victim blaming. Don't get me wrong. I mean, domestic violence victims get victim blamed all the time. And that's a story for another time. But um, these boys were not were not runaways. Most of them had never run away a day in their lives. And Mally was, or Winkle was going to the swimming pool. He didn't Mm -hmm. run away in his bathing suit. Right. And I don't know, um, you know, my sister tried to run away and we packed her a whole backpack full of things she might need. Like you don't just, you don't just run away with the clothes on your back. You right. You you take the money that you saved. You take your you know you take a pair of shoes. You take a jacket. Like you're not just running away to run away. No, you gotta have and your I, clean undies. Right. And the the postcards were, I mean, he sent postcards to them, and some of them, you know, some of the families were like, "This is not my child's handwriting." Right. I think that would have been a big indicator for me too. Definitely, because I think as a parent, like, you know what your child's handwriting looks like. Right. And that's you just, see it it's almost day. adding, like, insult to injury. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was trying to cover his tracks. I think that's just, like, that's so cruel. He was just being ignored. Like, yeah. He lived, I I think, honestly, I think the, the moving was more suspicious, like, mm-hmm. to me, um, 
to move every single, like he was moving every three months sometimes. Yep. I think that was more suspicious to me than, than him not moving. But once he found, um, once he got into his father's old house, he just kind of stayed there and made like a murder room and just, I, it's so crazy. It's so crazy. It is crazy. And I think a lot of the time when we're talking about these cases, people forget to think about the time period that they were set in. Mm-hmm. Um, we're covering a case in a couple of weeks that is very similar. Um, not not the not the case itself, but the fact of the time period. Mm-hmm. And like this would never happen today. But like in the 70s, this was just like your run-of-the-mill everyday kind of a thing that you stumbled upon. You had so many more serial killers and things mm-hmm. like that back then. Well, there was less. There was less uh, DNA because mm-hmm. they didn't really have. I mean, they didn't have that at all. No, not they at didn't all. have the training for ninety mm-hmm. percent of the. Like they didn't have the training that we have now either, and and not to say that they didn't try their best, but they were. All, I mean, it was 1970. 1970. A boy ran away or a girl ran away. They're like, yeah, they moved to California because that was the thing. People hitchhiked to California all the time. Well, and I think it's easier to assume that they ran away, Mm -hmm. you know, especially back then, because you never wanted to think that somebody was capable of this kind of evil. Right. And, you know, sometimes like it was just unprecedented. You, You didn't have a manual on how to handle it. You didn't know. Not even that you didn't, you weren't suspecting, you know, a candy man, somebody right. who's supposed to essentially make children happy. And he's the one committing all these horrible, horrible crimes. Against kids. hmm Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, it surprises me how many men become the victims or boys become mm-hmm. the victims. And I mean, it's more, I think it's more, it's more common than not. Like I agree. Jeffrey Dahmer. Yep. John Wayne Gacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, serial killers aren't, they, they know what they, they want and they stick to what one thing. So I would have thought that by the time you noticed 27 boys were missing, you would have tied it all together and been like, oh my gosh. We have a problem. Yeah. Instead, they're like, eh, 27 right. boys from the same area. I'll just ran away. <laughs> right. Just a mass exodus. It's like the dinosaurs. So crazy. They hate it here. <laughs> That's just, it's so sad to me. I think those it families really sad. deserved a whole lot more and a whole lot better. Than what they got. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Me too. Me too. I feel bad for them. I agree. Well, crime fans, that concludes our first month of Serial Killer Tuesday. So make sure that you guys tune in next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time for a new month of Serial Killers. In April, we're going to be discussing The Son of Sam, a.k.a. David Berkowitz, which I am super excited for. Me too. Well, thank you guys so much for listening today to Serial Killer Tuesday. We hope that you have a beautiful day wherever you are. Until next time, podcastians, have the day you deserve. (laughs) 